I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So um, thanks again for chatting with us here. Really appreciate it. Um, so... This is a podcast. While we were making season one of Gone South about the murder of a Louisiana attorney named Margaret Kuhn, we spoke with a man named Wallace Laird. So why don't you just start by telling me what your role was with the sheriff's office back then? I worked for 44 years. Oh, sorry. Just come a little closer to the mic. Sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Wallace was the chief deputy of the St. Tammany Sheriff's Office in the 1970s and 80s. And he was one of the lead investigators into Kuhn's murder in 1987. We were talking with Wallace about the theory that a reputed serial killer named Henry Lee Lucas had played a role in Kuhn's death when he mentioned a group I'd never heard of before. We had an office in Nashville where we had all the computers to do some work against the Dixie Mafia. Uh, You might have heard that name at one point. Actually, no. The Dixie Mafia? It was a group of outlaws that would uh, get together and they would get safe men from New Orleans and uh, another man from uh, Nashville. They would get six Wallace explained the basics of how the Dixie Mafia worked. Let's say they wanted to rob a bank in Jackson, Mississippi. They might get a safe cracker from Dallas, a getaway driver from Atlanta, and a weapons expert from New Orleans, who would all converge on the bank to do the heist, and then they'd scatter. This made them very hard to track down. That happened for a long time in the southeastern part of the country, from like Oklahoma all the way to the, to the east coast. Huh. Like when did this happen? Probably mostly in the 70s. Wow, that's interesting. Maybe that's our next podcast, uh, the Dixie Mafia in the 1970s. I mean, it's a group that was unbelievable. It yeah, really in the was. 70s. Wow. I'm going to look into it. That sounds really fascinating. Last question, really, for you. Yes, Because, you know, we're, we're wrapping up. Um, Later that day, we talked with Skip Sewell. Skip is a retired DEA agent who suspected Margaret Kuhn had been murdered by a jealous woman from her subdivision named Patricia Curry. Oh, well, I anything interesting this morning? Talked to Wallace Laird. He was talking, telling us stories about the Dixie Mafia. Yeah, that's a crazy story in itself. I don't, I don't think your door shut. Um, 
Yeah, should we make a doc yeah. about the uh, Dixie Mafia? Dixie Mafia is pretty fascinating. Our ears both perked up as he started talking about it. Yeah, you know, and surprisingly, I don't think they've ever done a whole lot on right. the Dixie Mafia. The guy that was head of it was a guy named, uh, was it Kurt Nix? There's, there's a couple Kirk of Nix. Something weird. Uh, Kirksey Nix. Nix, yeah, Nix. You know, they're, they're involved in murder that judge over in Biloxi and before. I'll, we'll talk yeah. about it in a little while, but yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Anyways, he, right, so let me get you a little oriented a little bit. Yeah, so, please. So there's my house right here, obviously. And a little further the other way is where Patricia Curry lives. But Wallace and Skip weren't the only ones to mention the Dixie Mafia. As we continued reporting the Margaret Coon story, people kept bringing them up. I'm sitting in a church by myself. She goes, well, I believe my husband is a hitman for the Dixie Mafia. And I'm like, really? What makes you say that? Dixie Mafia, second time that's come up. Yeah, you know, there's books on it and stuff. That's probably why I'll, I'm going to go missing one day. Yeah, they're evil. I mean, they're, they're evil. They're like the Dixie Mob. Because of her... Her notoriety because of who she was, who she knew. Was she a Dixie Mafia member? No. <laughs> You'll hear everything. I was intrigued by the Dixie Mafia, but I was consumed with trying to figure out who killed Margaret Kuhn, and I quickly forgot about them. Then, earlier this year, a private investigator we were talking to about an unrelated case gave us a copy of a rare book released in 1974 titled simply The Dixie Mafia. The book is long out of print. The only copy I could find online goes for $750 on eBay. It begins, The Dixie Mafia is a myth. But there is a loose confederation of professional criminals ranging across the South who are far more intelligent, apt, and dangerous than any Italian hitman who ever pounded the bricks in New York or Chicago's toughest days. The book was authored by Darlene M. Kern. A grainy author photo on the back shows her posing seductively on a mattress and holding a pearl-handled pistol. In the book, Darlene strikes a hard-boiled tone and casts herself as an authority on the Dixie Mafia. She's adamant that it's a work of nonfiction. Everything that is mentioned here, she writes, I have seen, heard, or know the people who participated in it firsthand. Flipping through the book, I came across a chapter titled The Gypsy Camp Caper. It described a bizarre robbery Dixie Mafia members committed in 1969 in St. Tammany Parish, the same area we covered in Season 1 of Gone South. Wallace Laird, it turned out, was the chief investigator on this case, too. I reached back out to Wallace to see if he remembered the story, but he was having some health issues. Instead, he put us in touch with a former detective for the New Orleans Police Department named Gene Fields, who'd worked the case with him. We were all having these similar robberies where ski mask bandits were coming in, committing robberies and leaving, and there was nothing to link them to anybody locally, and that's why, because they, they were all coming from out of town, going in, and people were setting up the robberies. At the time, we were referring to them only as traveling criminals. At some point, Gene said the bandits learned that a group of carnival workers, who he and others refer to as gypsies, were storing large sums of cash in a trailer park in Covington a small city 30 miles north of New Orleans, across Lake Pontchartrain. The workers, they would hold their cash because they, they didn't trust banks and they didn't want the police or IRS looking at them. And this one woman was, was supposedly holding all the money for everybody in the camp. She had a safe and also buried a lot of it in the ground. 
and uh, they called her the Gypsy Queen. But the idea was to go in to get to her to get the money. According to Darlene Kern's book, the bandits decided to attack the trailer park on the last day of Mardi Gras, having learned the men would be away, manning concession stands in New Orleans. As Kern puts it, meticulous attention was given to every detail of the planned commando operation. The bandits hired heist men, safe crackers, and an electronics expert. A firearm specialist supplied the gang with seven rifles and ten stolen Army 45 caliber pistols. Knowing the cops would likely blockade the roads if the trailer park's alarm sounded, they recruited a boat captain and even a seaplane pilot to fly the out-of-state members to safety. At 8.15 p.m. on February 18th, with Mardi Gras in full swing across the lake, the bandits pulled up to the trailer park. They were dressed in black and wore gloves and ski masks. They deactivated the electric perimeter fence and cut the phone lines, and then drove through the front gate. It was the last day of Mardi Gras. The women were home in their trailers, and the men were in New Orleans. This is Aaron Aramis. At the time, Aaron was 11 years old and living in a house next to the trailer park. I remember it was a cold night. I remember standing by our heater, and my mother was on the telephone with a cousin, and the phone went dead. And when she came out, that's when they broke the door down. They just busted through the front door. Aaron looked up and saw four men in ski masks. They were holding rifles and carrying large black duffel bags. One of them said, we're real sorry to have to do this to you people. But if you do what we say, nobody will be hurt. And they started dropping these bags, like a, like bank bags. My mother thought, oh my Lord, these people have robbed a bank. To our surprise, it wasn't money, but it was chains. One of the men said, I just need y'all to stay calm, and I want you to sit on the sofa. And so we all, all five children and my mother, sat on the sofa. And they took these chains and started with my oldest brother. And the chain went around his neck and a padlock. It would go around my neck and a padlock, to my mother and a padlock, to my brother and a padlock. And at the end, they would take it and wrap it around the foot of the sofa. Three of the men left, but returned soon after with a dozen women and children. The door opens up and in walks the gypsies. You know, they're falling in. There's two or three at a time. It's kind of like, as they're emptying trailers, they're bringing these people in. And we're wondering, okay, what is going on? Why are they bringing them into our, our home? Meanwhile, other masked bandits were busy breaking into safes on the property and stealing cash and jewelry. Eventually, they found Margie George, the so-called Gypsy Queen. They demanded she open a safe, which they believed was hidden beneath her bedroom floor. It was then, as Darlene Kern put it, that the score went bad, as all Gypsy scores seemed to have a habit of going. They had the Queen separated from the rest of them, 
and they started questioning her about the things, and she wouldn't tell them anything. She, she just began cursing them and, you know, get out of here, we don't have anything. According to Darlene Kern, Margie burst from the trailer and clawed at her attacker's mask, kicking, scratching, and biting him. It's unclear exactly what happened next, but the coroner's report would later determine Margie was struck in the head with a hatchet, nearly splitting her skull in two. When she collapsed on the ground, one of the bandits shot her point-blank in the forehead. The brutality of the killing was such that even the pathologist was shocked. As he later wrote, the skull fractures are the most massive this observer has ever seen. The bandits dragged Margie George's daughter-in-law, Dolores, into Aaron's house. She'd seen Margie's dead body lying on the ground, and she was terrified. She was hysterical, screaming that they had killed her mother-in-law. They killed her, they killed her. I mean, I just remember her crying. It's almost like your mind goes blank and you don't want to think about anything and you're just scared. They're going to kill all of us, maybe. I don't know what they're going to do. As Erin sat there fearing for her life, a pair of headlights appeared outside. One of the gypsies, back early from New Orleans, had just pulled into the trailer park. Then, a few minutes later, she saw the same car speeding away as the masked men chased after it, firing shots. And as they're leaving, they're passing in front of our house, and you could see flashes of lights flashing as this vehicle is passing by. Apparently, they got away. The bandits assumed the cops would soon be on their way. They grabbed their guns and duffel bags to leave. But before they left, they informed us that they were going to leave somebody there, that if anybody came out of the house, they would be shot on sight. So we all just sat there with chains on our necks. The bandits' escape plan then kicked into gear. After ditching their getaway cars at the Covington City dump, Darlene Kern writes that they boarded a stolen 18-foot aluminum powerboat, which they'd stashed on the banks of the Chifuncta River. The boat ferried the men into the middle of Lake Pontchartrain, where the seaplane picked up half of them. The rest continued across the lake to New Orleans, and disappeared into the Mardi Gras crowds. Meanwhile, back at the trailer park, sheriff's deputies discovered Margie George's dead body propped against a couch in her trailer. They cut the chains off Aaron and the gypsies and began collecting witness statements. And I don't even remember how long it took for everybody to leave my house. It was late. It felt like it was after 10 o'clock. And... Um, we were afraid. We didn't want to sleep in our bedrooms. I remember, even though it was five of us sleeping in my mama's bedroom that night. The sheriff's office launched a manhunt and set up roadblocks to try and catch the bandits. But all the cops could find was their scuttled powerboat containing a few dollar bills and an envelope of empty money wrappers. The men had escaped without a trace. Author Darlene Kern claims they made off with $50,000 in cash and $8,000 in jewelry, a haul worth more than $450,000 today. But the next day, officials got a lucky break. A local man, who'd heard the story on the radio, reported seeing five white males firing weapons into a dirt bank on his property days earlier, 
he'd jotted down one of their license plate numbers. The sheriff's office traced the plate to a 37-year-old man named Bobby Gale Gwynn. Gene Fields knew Bobby as a thief and safe burglar from the area. After his arrest, Gene said Bobby wasted no time in ratting on his accomplices. And during interrogation, he broke down and admitted that he was involved in the uh, gypsy camp. And uh, the information that he provided implicated Kirksey Nix, Charles Yandel, and Bill Club as, as being involved in, in the robbery with him. Gene recognized the men's names from bulletins the New Orleans Police Department had begun issuing to help officers identify traveling criminals across the Southeast. But the name he focused on was Kirksey Nix. Kirksey was just 25 years old, but he'd already developed a reputation as the leader of the Dixie Mafia. In the last few years, Kirksey had been arrested in Tulsa, Dallas, and Atlanta, all places where ski mask gunmen had pulled off robberies similar to the gypsy camp heist. Bill Club and Charles Yandel were apprehended shortly after the murder, but Kirksey remained at large. And they were having trouble finding him, and they found out later that he had he had left the state and had gone to Georgia and then was involved in some other kind of offense over there. And I think he pled guilty some minor charge or something to avoid being brought back to Louisiana. Kirksey pleaded guilty to a months-old charge of attempting to bribe a police officer in Atlanta. That way, he avoided facing murder and robbery charges in Louisiana, at least temporarily. Due to a lack of evidence at the scene, whether Kirksey and the others were convicted on those charges would depend on the bandits' willingness to rat on one another. But as one Louisiana lawman said, the Dixie Mafia have a simple code. If you're caught, don't talk. If you snitch, you're dead. A few months after Kirksey turned himself in, a judge released Bobby Gale Gwynn from Covington Jail on a $25,000 bond. They released him on bond, which he kind of objected to because he was worried about uh, the others knowing that he was a, an informant or a snitch. But he was released anyhow, and they lost track of him. He disappeared. Gwynn finally turned up that fall. His body was found in a clump of weeds off Interstate 20 outside Shreveport, Louisiana. A local detective concluded he'd been shot twice in the chest with a 45 caliber pistol, then shoved out of a car and shot five more times in the back. When his body was found, there was an investigation conducted, but we could never tie any individuals to his murder. You know, a club at the time was in jail, Yandel was in jail, and Nix was, was over in Georgia at the time, but they have enough associates, could have been anybody else that they sent over to take care of him and, and kill him. He was the key to the case, and the word leaked out that he was an informant and he was killed, mainly to keep him quiet. And once he was dead, the whole case kind of went in the tanks. They had no, no further evidence to, to move forward with it. You know, the case just was over. Louisiana law enforcement were convinced he played a role in the gypsy camp murder, but they had no proof. And yet, less than a year after his release, Kirksey would be implicated in another high-profile murder robbery in New Orleans. In 1972, at age 28, he was sentenced to life in prison at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, also known as Angola. His reign as the reputed leader of the Dixie Mafia appeared to be over. 
But with Kirksey Nix, appearances can be deceiving. As I came to learn, Kirksey wasn't your average Dixie Mafia figure. His father was the Chief Justice of the Oklahoma Criminal Court of Appeals. His mother was one of the first female attorneys in the state. His uncle, Robert S. Kerr, was an oil tycoon who served as governor of Oklahoma before spending three terms in the U.S. Senate. One of Kirksey's fellow inmates at Angola told us he possessed a genius-level IQ. Others described him as a pathological liar and a serial killer. Kirksey has rarely spoken publicly about his life, and much of who he is and what he did remains shrouded in mystery. It's hard to separate fact from fiction. Not long ago, I sent him a letter in prison, figuring I wouldn't hear back. But a few months later, I got a call. This call is from a federal prison. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. How, how are you? I'm all right. I'm alive. By sending Kirksey Nix to prison for life, authorities believe they delivered a death blow to the Dixie Mafia. But 15 years later, a brutal double homicide in the town of Biloxi, Mississippi would send shockwaves through the Deep South. The story made international headlines, and interest only grew as the police failed to make any arrests. After years of dead ends, law enforcement were forced to confront a disturbing reality. Kirksey Nix and the Dixie Mafia were not done yet. I'm Jed Lipinski. Welcome back to Gone South. This is Season 2, The Dixie Mafia. Episode 1, Traveling Criminals. Calling all pop culture enthusiasts. Are you obsessed with all things celebrity? Do you live for the drama, the laughs, and the unexpected moments that unfold on social media? Then you're going to want to tune in to the Comments by Celebs podcast. Join us three times a week as we deep dive into every aspect of pop culture. Whether it's dissecting the latest trends or just chatting about your favorite celebs, Comments by Celebs has you covered. We have new episodes out every week. Follow and listen to Comments by Celebs on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners. We got listeners. No way. Amazing. Now available on the Odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm so happy we're at Odyssey now. Oh my God, they're amazing. The Commercial Break Podcast. You heard it here last. On the night of September 14, 1987, Vince and Margaret Sherry, a married couple with four grown children, were murdered in their Biloxi home. Vince was a former defense attorney and a sitting circuit court judge. Margaret was a former city councilwoman who had run for mayor two years earlier and lost by just 500 votes. Vince and Margaret's bodies were discovered two days later by Vince's former law partner, Pete Hallett. Pete was Vince's best friend and had managed Margaret's mayoral campaign. He would later serve as the mayor of Biloxi himself. And yet, in 1997, 10 years after the murders, Pete Hallett was convicted of assisting in a criminal enterprise that led to Vince and Margaret's deaths. He served 15 years in prison before his release in 2014. Kirksey, for his part, was given an additional life sentence for the role he played in the Sherry murders. 
Several other reputed members of the Dixie Mafia also earned prison time. The story captured national attention and dominated news headlines in Mississippi for years. It remains one of the biggest murder cases in the state's history. As I was researching this story, yet another strange thing happened. I got an email from a woman named Brandon Hallett Skeen. Brandon explained that she was Pete Hallett's daughter. She had listened to the first season of Gone South, she said, and she suggested we consider her father's story for season two. Brandon claimed her dad had played no role whatsoever in the murder conspiracy, that the government had targeted him for personal and political reasons. She said he'd be happy to talk with us if we ever came to Biloxi. As she put it, I'm not seeking anything but his truth to be told. Two weeks later, we were on our way to Biloxi, Mississippi. Right, so there's the golf course. I lived in New Orleans for years, but I never spent any time in Biloxi until May of this year. That's partly because I'm not a gambler. The coast is lined with giant casinos like the Beau Rivage, the Golden Nugget, and Treasure Bay, all of them owned by Las Vegas gambling conglomerates, which pounced as soon as Mississippi legalized gambling in 1992. But gambling has always been a part of Biloxi. Whereas most of Mississippi is religious and conservative, Biloxi is neither of those things. As one local told us, Biloxi is where the Bible Belt comes unbuckled. It looks like it's all closed down. This is like a no longer a functioning downtown. Well. For decades, the city was known for the Strip, a section of beachside highway packed with nightclubs and low-rent striptease joints, where illegal gambling and prostitution were an open secret. The clubs had names like Bee's Silver Slipper, the Dream Room, the Chandelier, and the Shea Joey. Driving along Beach Boulevard, the busy four-lane highway that cuts the beach off from the rest of the city, I expected to see at least some remnants of the old strip. But all that remains are a few gift shops and restaurants that make winking references to the strip's illicit past. Like Fat Bottom Barbecue, which advertises in big neon letters, butts, butts, and more butts. Nearly 35 years had passed since Vince and Margaret's bodies were found in their home. But finding people who remembered them and the events of that day was easy. So, um, tell me whatever you can about Vince and, and Margaret as characters in Biloxi in the 80s when you were a young kid. Vince was known to be a very bright attorney, a very talented attorney. He was also known to represent a lot of the seedier side of Biloxi and whenever they had criminal problems. That's Robert Horensky, the Biloxi City Prosecutor. His mother, Diane, served on the Biloxi City Council with Margaret years before and was close to both her and Vince. I remember one judge saying that Vince's IQ was so, so high it would blow the roof off the courthouse. He was a very thoughtful person. Before he said something, he considered his words calculated. I would say the best way to picture him is as your stereotypical Southern lawyer. And Margaret was extremely bright. She was very outgoing, very vocal. If Margaret had a feeling or a thought about something, you knew it. And... The other thing that was kind of interesting about him was 
Margaret was a devout Republican and Vince was a devout Democrat. And people would ask them, well, why would you marry each other? Why would you stay married? Their answer was, the other one was the only person worthy to argue with. On the night they were killed, a Monday, Vince and Margaret were due to come to the Horensky's house to watch some local election results. My mom was on the phone with Margaret, and Margaret told my mom, I gotta go, Vince is bugging me, he wants something to eat, we'll see you later on. The Sherrys never showed up that night, but Robert and his mother were not concerned. Vince and Margaret led extremely active social lives that caused them to miss appointments, parties, and other events. We were not surprised that they didn't show up because Margaret would sometimes just didn't didn't show up or something comes up. You know, we got tied up doing so-and-so or got delayed at a party or something like that. Soon after we spoke with Robert, Brandon Hallett-Skeen put us in touch with her father, Pete. Pete turned 80 years old in 2022 and lives in Ocean Springs, a short drive from Biloxi. On the morning of Wednesday, September 16th, two days after Diane Horensky spoke with Margaret on the phone, Pete was at his law office in downtown Biloxi when he received a call from the circuit court administrator's office. Vince had failed to show up for court that morning, and the clerk thought Pete might know where he was. And I told her I thought they were in New Orleans, and she said, well... You know, he has something set here today. He has to be here today. Pete said that he and Vince had lunch together the previous Friday, as they often did. Did the same thing we did every day. We sat around for about half an hour, just shooting the breeze. We got up, we walked to the back. He said, I'll see you anon. I said, I'll see you anon. I'll see you pretty soon. Like the Horenskys, Pete was not surprised that Vince hadn't showed up to court. I used to always say Vince lived on Hong Kong time. And, you know, if he'd say he'll be there at 8 o'clock, he might be there at 10 o'clock. You know, watches didn't mean anything to Vince. I said, well, I'll call him. So we started calling, and we couldn't get, couldn't get an answer. You know, you've reached the residence of Margaret and Vince Sherry, and I'd leave a message. And, you know, I, I wasn't really concerned because, like I said, Vince... Time didn't didn't mean anything uh, to him. Pete and his wife Sandra lived a few blocks from Vince and Margaret inside the Ancient Oaks subdivision. It's an upscale community next to the Sun-Kissed Country Club, which the Sherrys and Hallets both belong to. So Pete called Sandra and asked her to drive by the house. She came back and said that um, nobody was home, but both uh, cars were in the driveway. I thought it was real strange, you know, something, something was was off-key there. So Pete decided to drive over himself, and he asked a young law associate to come with him. We went over there and saw both of the cars parked in the driveway. and kind of interesting. So I went over to the, um, to the front door. Actually, it was, it was kind of ajar, like it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't fully closed. And the dogs were barking, the little weenie dogs were in there barking, and yap, 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 yap. And, and I could smell, um, I could smell something like dog crap that uh, I knew. I, it, it didn't usually smell that way. I walked in, and you got to walk around a little corner, and then it goes into the den, and Vince was laying on the floor. 
with his feet toward me and his, and his head pointing in the opposite direction with blood on the floor. And uh, I mean, I knew he was, I knew he was dead by just by looking at him. And I knew Margaret was probably dead if she was there because they, these two people never went anywhere without knowing where each of them were. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. It was like nothing I'd ever seen in my life. I, I don't think I'd ever seen a, a, a dead person, more, much less one of my friends laying down there on the floor. I've, I've never seen a, a, a corpse in that position other than in a coffin. It was just terrible. Things was whirling around in my head and everything, and I didn't know, I didn't know what, what was going to happen next. I didn't know what to do. I ran out the door, and I said, call the police. Vince and Margaret are dead. The first officer to arrive at the scene of the Sherry murders was a young patrol deputy named Robert Gentz. After entering the home, he found the Sherry's two dachshunds, Moe and Fritz, guarding Vince's body in the den. The dogs were in there barking and, and raising all kinds of hell. You could tell that the dogs had been in the house for a while because they, they some mess on the floor. They were standing by Vince's body and they, they were kind of like, you're not coming over here. With his gun drawn, Gens proceeded to secure the rest of the house. He walked down a long hallway leading to the primary bedroom. That's where I found Miss Sherry in, in the back, uh, in the bedroom. And she was on the floor slumped up against the bed. You could definitely tell that she, she was gone as far as how. It was kind of hard to tell at that point. But it was an, pretty well assumption that she'd been shot. It was a holy shit. I knew what it was a bad thing and, and just how bad it was, but I didn't know which direction it was going into. The next officer to arrive was Kevin Ladner, a narcotics detective who'd been reassigned to the crime scene investigation unit. The house was not ransacked. The furniture was not disarrayed. You know, the house was in good order. As Ladner searched the home, he found the television on with the volume muted. He noted that Vince's wallet was still in his pocket, Margaret's purse had not been rummaged through, and their small safe had not been tampered with. Everything led Kevin to believe that Vince may have known the killer. You know, by no struggle or something, led to believe that the judge may have met somebody, invited him in, somebody he knew, he felt comfortable. And with her being in the back room, the way that she was found, she may not even have known that the person was in the house. Kevin and his team then began processing the crime scene. Vince, who was wearing blue seersucker pants and a white button-down shirt, had sustained what looked like multiple gunshot wounds to the face. Margaret, meanwhile, had apparently been changing in front of a bedroom mirror when she was shot multiple times in the head. She was dressed only in a bra and underwear and was clutching an earring in her right hand. The wall beside the dresser had two bullet holes in it, suggesting the killer had missed before firing the kill shots. In all, Ladner and the team collected a total of nine 22 caliber Remington shell casings, six from the primary bedroom and three from the den. Other than that, Ladner said there wasn't much evidence to speak of. Nothing else was significant 
that drew my attention or anybody else's attention that says, hey, this doesn't belong here. But Kevin did notice one unusual detail. Beside both Margaret and Vince's bodies were what the forensic report described as foam rubber-like particles. Ladner assumed the dogs had something to do with it. Well, we collected this strange bit of fiber, but there was also two dogs. The two dogs had been in there for two days, so they could have ripped something up. It could have come from a pillow or something. It wasn't a situation that drew anybody's attention. While Kevin and the crime scene unit were still in the house, the Harrison County Medical Examiner, Stephen Delahousey, screeched to a halt outside. It was chaotic. A lot of law enforcement on the scene. I saw the door was open, and I said, you know, who, who the hell's in the house? And they said, well, some of our police officers and the investigators are. And I said, get them the hell out of there right now. They are corrupting my crime scene. Get them the hell out of there. In the event of a death in Mississippi, Delahousie explained, the county coroner, not the local cops, has jurisdiction of the crime scene until he completes his investigation. By now, half a dozen Biloxi police officers had walked in and out of the house. Delahousie feared that they'd compromise the case before it even began. And then so I found the few people that were in there, I made them get out, and then I made, I made everybody put full scrub attire on with hats and, you know, everything that you would put on when you went in surgery. I said, because, you know, I mean, even a hair fiber. Cops at the scene thought Delahousie was being overly cautious, but he knew the Sherrys personally, and as a native Biloxian, he knew what a big deal this crime would be for the city. He also knew that the Biloxi Police Department had a long and sordid history of corruption that could sink the investigation if people like him weren't vigilant. Director of Public Safety said, you know, well, maybe you don't understand. And I'm like, no, maybe you don't understand. This is going to be the most intensive forensic scene that we've ever investigated. We need to make sure we do it right. The autopsy was performed by Delahousie and renowned Gulf Coast pathologist Dr. Paul McGarry, now deceased. Their report indicated that Vince had been shot once below the eyelid, once in the upper lip, and once in the lower lip this last shot fracturing his teeth. Margaret had taken four gunshot wounds to the left side of her head, as if the killer had been standing over her. The pathologist and police both agreed that the use of a 22 Remington automatic was significant. The small caliber bullets ricochet through the body, causing maximum damage. This makes them a weapon of choice for hitmen. The next day, Biloxi Police Chief Tommy Moffat said he was confident the Sherrys were killed by professionals. Beyond that, the cops didn't have much to go on. From first appearances, this will be a very difficult crime to solve. The effort will be headed up by Chief of Biloxi Investigations, John Williams, who admits this will be the most complex case of his career. Many months would pass before the citizens of Biloxi learned that the Dixie Mafia and Kirksey Nicks were connected to the Sherry murders. Is a connection between the murders and, and the scam out of Angola? I would prefer not to comment on that at this time. The true nature of that connection would remain a mystery for years. In fact, much of the Sherry murders is still unknown and hotly debated. You have certain people that have information that they may be reluctant to give. 
This wasn't random. This wasn't a robbery. Was he the target? Was she the target? Did the mayor have anything to do with this? As far as the Sherry murder investigation is concerned, my life is an open book. It's a canard. It's a pig trade. That is what I told you. The federal government prosecuted the case but it's still considered unsolved in the state of Mississippi. This indictment is clearly not the end of the Sherry murder story. When I filed a public records request for local police reports, the Biloxi Police Department denied it on the grounds that it's still an open investigation. Everything down there is crooked, just dealing with this case. You guys have really got it wrong. All of those other officers and all those other FBI people lied through their fucking teeth. But to make any sense of the Sherry murders, I needed to understand the origins of the Dixie Mafia. They would tell you there was no such thing as the Dixie Mafia. For years, I've left a trail of blood and violence throughout the South. Murders, drugs, robberies. Get your gun. Something's going on. They have no mercy. None at all. And there was no better place to start than with Kirksey Nix. I'm an outlaw, and I, and I was a thief. But I'm far from being the psychopathic nutcase that I've been made out to be. Thank you for listening to Gone South, a creation and production of C-13 Originals, a Cadence 13 studio. Executive produced by Chris Corcoran, Chief Content Officer and Founding Partner of Cadence 13, along with Jed Lipinski, Tom Lipinski, and Ken Lee. Written and narrated by me, Jed Lipinski. Directed and produced by Lloyd Lockridge. Produced by Tom Lipinski. Edited by Alistair Sherman. Mixed and mastered by Chris Basil. Production support by Ian Mont, Margot Gray, Bill Schultz, Bob Tabador, and Sean Cherry. Original music written and performed by Casey Wayne McAllister. Artwork by Kurt Courtenay. Marketing, PR, sales and operations and business affairs by Maura Curran, Josefina Francis, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santroen, Lizzie Roberti, Danny Kutrick, and Karen Andrews. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, Justin Alexander, an adventurer, was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive deep into our investigation and uncover the strange events surrounding Justin's disappearance in status untraced. Check out this sneak preview. And this last experience he had with Rawat, I didn't feel good about it. In fact, I felt it was dangerous. It sounds strange, but I just, in my mother's heart, something was not okay. I felt that he was a nefarious character. Status Untraced is available now. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.